0: Authors on the Air. Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm Terry Shepard. Point of view is the most basic building block for storytellers, and it's often the most misunderstood. In her new book, Who Says?, Professor Lisa Zeidner achieves the improbable. She's created a writer's how-to book that is also an addicting page-turner. Author Percival Everett calls Who Says?, wonderfully accessible, a helpful text for any writer at any career stage. Author Ann Parker calls it an indispensable guide for writers of all levels. And Kirkus concludes with its usual succinctness that Who Says?, is an engaging and well-informed writing companion, a thorough, practical guide. Lisa is the author of five novels, most recently Love Bomb and two books of poems. She's also a screenwriter. Her essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, and Salon, just to name drop a few. She teaches in the MFA program in creative writing at Rutgers Camden and lives in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Before we bring her on, I want to share a stanza from her latest novel, Love Bomb, and there will be a point of view test afterwards. Later, it would be pointed out that Dr. Helen Burns had opposed the wedding from the start. Not the marriage, but the party. If they were a tribe in unforgiving terrain, if life were hard and short, there would be an excuse for people to festoon their hair with feathers and machete the suckling pig. People in love, let's eat. But here, it was silly. Why sanctify their love with a ceremony, especially a ceremony performed not in a church but in a suburban backyard by a friend who made a point of alerting everyone that he bought his ministry license on the internet. If weddings were pointless, Ironic weddings were even more excruciatingly so. Like being a little bit pregnant. How can you believe slightly in the power vested in church or state? Although, in fairness, that's exactly how most people believe. They hedge their bets. Far be it from Helen to challenge them. Let the psychiatrist's browbeat them about the inconsistencies in their belief systems. Lisa Seidner, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks very much.
0: I got to tell you that I found Love Bomb to be an addicting read. You blend multiple themes with ease. Your narrator does what we all like best as readers, takes us inside the heads of the characters. How did you first learn about Point of View?
1: Oh, wow. Um, well, I've been at this game, I don't know, 40 years. <laughs> um and I went to an MFA program, and then I've taught in an MFA program for many, many years. Um, And I find that point of view is the thing that most writers don't get. They they just sort of automatically go to a point of view, but they're not that great at parsing out what it entails. So that's really how I started thinking in depth about it. Uh, and trying to think of ways with my students to explain to them ways to think about it. Um, So that's, I mean, I've just been at it a while.
0: (laughs) When our students pass our class, we hope that they can boil the concepts into something their parents can understand. What's, Uh (laughs) What's the point of view elevator speech you hope people take away from their experience with you?
1: uh just the shortest way I can put it is that uh, words on a page are not a a movie point of view in a movie where you have the camera as the eye as the objective eye that can maybe color the oh wait I'm already off an elevator speech this is my problem the digressions but all right a, a word on a page is not a camera You know, you really have to think about uh, the way you're interfacing with the reader without the camera as a thing between you. Uh, And I do find that most writers have seen a lot more movies than they've read books. And even if they have read a zillion books, they're not breaking them down as easily as they do with film. Everybody thinks they get film.
0: It's a hard concept to articulate.
1: Right, I mean, the, the, the basic thing I stress is that when you're reading a book, you're forming a relationship with two people. One is the character and one is the author. You're always aware of the author there. Um, the, char- the author never goes away entirely. And I argue that if you don't like, you cannot like character, but if you don't like the author, you don't like the book. You have to like and trust the author. The second you stop doing that, you're either disengaged or disgusted. So um, that's the premise from which the book proceeds.
0: Um, What does it take to build trust with an author?
1: Well, you have to feel that the author is is being honest with you and that the author isn't self-aggrandizing. That the whole point of the exercise isn't for the author to hear himself speak that the author is aware of your presence and tracking your reactions. And that you, you know, you're not being blathered to on a bus, right? So um, different techniques work with different points of view. And that's kind of what I go through in the book. So the, the passage you just read, that's in Helen's head, right? That's what Helen thinks. But I don't think anybody reading that doesn't know that I've constructed Helen's POV, right? So that's where things get tricky. It's not like I've vanished into Helen there. Um, And that may be the hardest distinction for novice writers to get, the distinction between omniscience and what we call third-person aligned, where you're going into a character's viewpoint uh, kind of thoroughly. So I just try to break that down with a lot of examples
0: in the book. Lisa Zeidner is our guest on the program. Who says is the book? Ostensibly a textbook for writers at Point of View. You pick some amazing authors as examples in the book. Jane Austen, Leo Tolstoy, and Stephen King are three. What made you choose those examples?
1: Uh... Well, I tried to get a good blend of, you know, classic things that everybody knows about with newer things that are attempting new things. And you're always gonna be, the second the book comes out, something else happens. Like, why Charles Yu, who just won the National Book Award for Interior Chinatown is a novel written as a, partly as a screenplay. That's not in the book, but, uh, you know, I did my best with the examples that there are. So you really can't talk about first person and not mention To Kill a Mockingbird or childhood points of view, right? I mean, everybody's read To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, so I tried to include the things that were obvious and then find some things that were maybe less obvious to discuss.
0: As an author, do you have a favorite point of view?
1: For my own writing? Um well, first person, as I say in the book, is always feels the easiest and the most accessible because you get to basically ventriloquize the voice. Um, you, you kind of eliminate the distance or at least you think you eliminate the distance. So I always found, find it more fun to write in first person because it, it, it almost takes less discipline <laughs> or at least it appears that way on a, on a first go through of a project. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in the book saying, first person is not what you think. You still have an author and a character. Um, you know, as we learn from Lolita, you know, um, Nabokov is not Humbered Humbered, even though the book is written in first person. He is not a child molester, <laughs> you know, the author himself. Uh, a lot of readers don't get that. They conflate the character and the author, and they think that the character appro- that the author approves of everything the character does. That's obviously not true in good books.
0: I've heard readers say that they like third person better because the narrator can tell them stuff that the character doesn't know. How important is that?
1: Uh, well, uh, you said you're writing a novel about a detective. Uh, if you're looking at something where the plot depends on the revelation of a piece of information. Um, you're really counting on the author for two things. One, to know what that information is. <laughs> and two, to reveal it to you in a way that feels um, uh, well-paced, interesting, surprising, but not manipulative. So nobody likes an author springing a plot twist on them, unless the author has set up, I'm gonna be springing plot twists on you. That's what you're here for, you know? So again, I don't, that's no elevator speech. I don't know if I answered your question. If I could do elevator speeches, I wouldn't have had to write this book. But you know, third person feels more reliable. It feels as if there's a trustworthy interpreter of events posited between you and the action. And it's also what we're mostly familiar with. Uh, I think many more people have read third person accounts than first person accounts. Yeah. I think people like it.
0: I've heard it said that third person is, Hey, don't open that door. I know what's behind it. And first person is, gee, I wonder what's behind that door. I'll open it. Is that a valid comparison? That's a much
1: better elevator speech than I just gave. Um, But, you know, if the first person says, hey, I wonder, I know what's behind that door, let's open it. Don't you think you still know the author is making that up? And the question always becomes how much daylight is there between the author and the character? Um, You know, and in first person, sometimes there isn't enough daylight. I mean, you can, I have a whole passage in the book on um, uh, my female student's reaction to John Updike. You know, they think he's a terrible sexist and they don't wanna read him. Uh, And sometimes it seems like John Updike doesn't get how horrible some of his male protagonists are, but sometimes he's holding them up for condemnation. Uh, And the the students who say, I'm just not gonna read this because I don't like the character aren't engaging in the more sophisticated process of breaking down what the author's relationship to the character is, how the author's judging him. Uh, I mean, when you're going through a novel, part of what you're following is, do I like what's happening to this character? Do I like what this character is doing? What fate do I want from this character at the end?
0: You're so good at describing this stuff and you've been teaching this for 30 years. When did you know you wanted to become a writer?
1: Uh, age six, maybe. I think my first book was called, um, escape from the zoo. Um, you know, I was writing little books and illustrating them. Um, and, uh, they were full of ads in the back about other books you could buy that I told my parents I was going to produce if I had enough buyers. So I was very focused early on on the marketing (laughs) (laughs) questions, but I always loved it. Um, And loved reading, obviously. And, you know, I'm sure every guest you have on your show says this, the best way to learn to write is to read.
0: What point of view did you use in that first book?
1: Third, of course.
0: (laughs) Why do you think point of view is such an elusive concept for people to grasp?
1: I think it's complicated. Uh, you know, there are just a lot of things that you have to think about. Um, But I guess on the simplest level, people always assume that a sentence means what it says. Um, And I think fiction is all about reading behind the sentences. Uh, You never take anything on face value when you're reading. You're always thinking a little beyond what the character thinks, what the author is telling you. That's how you stay engaged, right? You're waiting for the next shoe to drop. And that doesn't have to be a big plot thing. It can be as simple as Lizzie Bennett has turned down this proposal from this rich dude. And oh my God, now she's found out he isn't as evil as she thought he was. What's gonna happen now? How is she gonna feel about her her own pride and her own prejudice? So you're tracking an emotional response, not, not necessarily just a plot development. And those always require a kind of second guessing of a character. It's not just the revelation of what happens. It's how you follow what the character does. And that's true even on projects that seem not very literary. You know, Stephen King's Misery is about a writer. What does he do as a writer? He plots his escape. He's plotting the book that Stephen King is writing. So even on the level of something that's a big bestseller and ostensibly very straightforward, there are these interesting levels. You, you wish for, I forget the character's name in, in that. I, I want to say James Caan, but he's not the character. You're waiting, for, you, you desperately want this character to be okay. But you you also are aware that what he's doing is Thinking of what he's going to do next, and you're invited along in that process of his thinking, and you're invited along with an author who you know knows how to plot a uh, thriller. You know you're engaged not just in the plot I'm saying, but in the process. Right, A, a novel especially is about a process of your relationship with the events that are happening. Otherwise, they get really boring, right?
0: What's the right way to jump between points of view within a chapter?
1: If you're in a third person omniscient point of view, you can go to a series of third person limited points of view. And many, many authors do that these days. Um, and I explain in the book, um, the term uh, free and direct discourse, which um, is when an author is in the author's own voice, but suddenly dips into the character's voice. Uh, And you don't need the author to say, quotation mark, he thought this, because you can tell by the language that you're being dumped into the pool of the character's point of view. So that's one way you can do it. You can do it in a series of sections. And a lot of writers these days, i discuss this in the book, The, the direction that omniscience has gone contemporary omniscience, is a lot of very closely aligned points of view. And I think we know from watching so many movies that when you go to another character, you're going to just what that character knows. And that sooner or later, all of these points of view are gonna coalesce in the plot in a meaningful way. Uh, So the author is in charge of the switches, but the characters own their sections. So that's one way you can do it, uh, you know, between chapters, Um, I mean, inside a chapter. Uh, There are writers who uh, have different chapters that belong entirely to different characters. And there are even writers who I discuss in the book who split the book between two points of view, Uh, notably uh, Lauren Groff's States and Furious. You're down in Florida, so I'm sure you know that book where we get the you know husband's POV and then we go to the wife's and obviously they're gonna contradict each other. Same with Gone Girl. We have the, we're following the woman who's made this horrible mess and then we're following the husband who has no clue what's going on. Uh, so that's a direction that third person has gone in a lot of contemporary books.
0: Lisa Zeidner is our special guest on the program today. Who says is her latest? She is known primarily for uh, some amazing fiction in her canon. Go to Amazon.com to her author page, and it's all there. And uh, she also has a website and uh, writes in a half a dozen different online um, uh, journals. So just Google that name, Lisa Zeidner, Z-E-I-D-N-E-R, and you can start to dig a little bit into the mind of our amazing, uh, guest today. When did you know you wanted to teach?
1: Well, my father said to me when I was about 18 and was in college, nobody can be a poet full time, uh, find another occupation, uh, to earn a living. I started as a psych major. I went to Clark university because Freud had visited there. Um, and you know, obviously, psychology and penetrating a character and a character's point of view have some things in common. Um, but I really, I took one social science course, and I realized I don't have the math head for actual to actually pass these courses. Um, so I mean, I've never been out of school. I've been in school since kindergarten. Um, uh, I like teaching, and it's it's a great pleasure to um, watch writers grow and watch them really hone their craft to get their vision across. And our MFA program at, at Rutgers Camden has had a lot of successful um, students. So that's a, that's a huge pleasure.
0: Who are some of the names we'd know that have crossed your path and become writers? Uh,
1: well, Micaiah Johnson just published a book called The Space Between Worlds. That's, is that the correct title? I think so. That's uh, doing very well. Peranta, um, Oparanta, uh, who has published in the New Yorker was um, a student of ours. Um, uh, two names that are coming to me just a second, but there are a lot, including, um, The poet Gregory Pardlow, who won the Pulitzer, and now teaches with us, but was an undergraduate of mine a good 20, 30 years ago. So he's come a long way.
0: (laughs) And did you know when you were working with these guys back then that they had the magic to make it?
1: Well, um, anyone will tell you it's um, partly magic, but mostly sleight of hand. Um, and what you need is just the will to push through. Uh, so you can always see the um, intensity of the focus. And you know, the other thing is willingness to rewrite and rethink. That's the, what I see is the, the hugest difference between students who make it and students who don't get as far. That the students uh, who are really good accept criticism better or more open to trying new things. Um, and don't say when you comment on a grant, on a draft, well, that's just your opinion. <laughs> so, um, you know, that openness. Um, and I often feel, um, you know, if you've ever watched um, uh, basketball coaches drilling players on how to make free throw shots. You know, there's a lot of breaking down of how are you standing? How are you aiming? How is your hand position? It's really, really detailed. And they do it over and over and over. But then in the game, they just want to have the magic going. So you're always getting a balance between doing the background work of really breaking things down technically and then just having a hot hand uh, um, most writers will tell you that their best work comes very quickly, but that doesn't mean that they're not rewriting. It just means that the rewriting has put, um, uh, good writing in the bank, the ability to come to it well, when you're, when you're really in the process. So everything accretes, even if you throw it out and that's hard, <laughs> you know, uh, it's hard to throw things out, but it all it all eventually works. If you make that effort.
0: In your experience as a writer, how many drafts on average does it take before you're satisfied?
1: 30, 40. I mean, I, you know, now that we're all on computers, I don't archive the drafts. So I have no clue. Some writers, just keep going until they get a whole draft and then they try to go back and rewrite. I'm one of the people that believes every word has to be perfect before I move on, which is a prissy and self-serving way to (laughs) proceed because it never is. And the other thing I find is that the beginnings of works always require more novels, always require more work than the ends because by the time you get to the end, you know what you're doing and where you're going but when you start, you're still feeling it out. So I would say the last first chapter of my last novel, I rewrote, I don't know, hundreds of times, but the end, by the time I got there, didn't require as much.
0: Well, from a marketing perspective, they say that that first paragraph, that first page is how a lot of readers make their determination of whether or not they're gonna buy their book. And in Love Bomb, You fire all weapons in that first chapter.
1: Yeah, literally, in the case of that book. Um, Yeah. Um, So, yeah, there's a chapter in this book, as you know, uh, about first paragraphs. And about, because people always say uh, you have to hook a reader from the first sentence or the first paragraph. But I don't know if it's always clear what that means. You know, it doesn't just mean get out the Glock and um, shoot somebody. It, 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 there are some projects where that's clear from the beginning. I mean, you know, misery starts with accident. Is he going to make it out alive? But some projects are, are, are subtler than that. So um, I do spend some time on how to think about those first paragraphs. And the, and the, the point is um, there has to be something that keeps the reader going to the next sentence to find out what happens or what they think. You know, one, just as one example that I give in the book, the first sentence of the Rachel papers is, uh, my name is Charles Highway, though you wouldn't think it to look at me. Now, what on earth does that mean i you know you're going to read to the next sentence just to find out what does the charles highway look like uh you know and anyone why is somebody named charles highway it doesn't seem like a real name so you're engaged on a lot of levels going into that first sentence even though nobody's getting shot
0: lisa zeidner is our guest who says is the book You have a wonderful way of distilling complex concepts, characters, and intricate plots into accessible, delectable ideas that are easy to grasp. Thank you very much. Where did that come from?
1: Uh, Well, I assume the teaching. I mean, one thing I've learned from teaching is that textbooks that have a long, dry explanation and then quote-unquote illustrative reading at the end of the chapter that your teacher is supposed to go through with you. Don't work for students. They don't work for me. I get to the story and I think, I don't wanna read this story. I wanna read a different story. Um, So the the first part of the project of the book was to not make people read whole long things. And in fact, I argue in the book um, strongly that you shouldn't need to do that to get the point of view of a project, that the point of view should be clear in every sentence of your work. Uh, So I'm really um, teaching a way of breaking down point of view concepts, not um, helping readers to read specific stories, which I think, you know, isn't, isn't helpful, I have found. And also we all have very short attention spans these days because, you know, texts are coming in we have to check election results i mean there's there's a lot going on right so we want to be grabbed clearly uh and uh, i find teaching that if i say what is that actor's name everybody happy goes googling you know more than they can concentrate on what i'm saying so i try to give google breaks
0: so Guys like Michener and early Ken Follett where they have these 2000 page tomes might not be bestsellers these days because of attention span.
1: That's an interesting point and question. There's always people who, when they go to the beach, like to take, a you know, huge book, huge, because they're going to be there for a week and it feels substantial. And they're probably not going to read 500 books that year. Anyway, the people who are drawn to that, you know, there are people who are drawn to kinds of historical fiction with a ton of facts, you know, yet another book about World War II, the battles of World War II. So, but you know, I've just got Obama's memoir and it's really long. It's really detailed. but it's pretty readable so you know there are ways to make a long book really readable
0: david mccullough yeah i always look to truman as one of the ideal biographies because he writes a lot like you do every the end of every chapter of that guy's life makes you want to turn the page to the next one
1: well that's what you want what you don't want is you're reading a chapter in a historical novel and somebody's buying a house in 1920 and you have to go to the bank with them to get the mortgage. You're thinking, can't we just cut to them furnishing the house? Uh, If your feeling is that the author is telling you every single step and not editing what's important, you're going to lose your engagement. So that's another thing I talk about in the book, what counts as an engaging
0: detail. These days, you probably wouldn't be cutting to the furnishings, you'd be cutting to where the house burns down.
1: <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Little fires everywhere.
0: What do you hope that who says impact will ultimately be in the world?
1: Well, I just was aiming to write a book that um, serious writers and serious teachers could use. That's what I hope for it. I mean, I hope that it stays in print. <laughs> you know, I'm sure as you talk to writers, especially with print on demand, you're, you're talking to them about all the changes in the culture of book publishing and book buying. But, you know, the other thing is I've been teaching a very long time and I did feel like it was time to pull together these ideas. Uh, and not just spill them out verbally. So it was, it was a pleasure to do that. Um, and I'm glad that the book engaged you because that was a big worry of mine. Like, this is a lot of detail on point of view. The editor said to me when I was working, you know, we need a very short book. I mean, it could be 100, 120 pages. Well, it isn't. Apparently, I had a lot to say on the subject. You know, before I had this book, when I taught, the craft course on point of view at rutgers Camden. I used James Wood's uh, How Fiction Works, which is a book I like very, very much and I think is very smart. I think less user-friendly for writers than what I wanted to produce. I mean, I wanted to produce something that if you were working on a story in first person, that you could read the first person chapter and think, well, how did I make my character likable? Do I want my character to be likable? If I want my character to be unlikable, have I indicated to the reader that I know the character is unlikable? How do I do that? You know, so just a more um, technically focused rather than scholarly focused. Even though you know how fiction works is a very readable book, but it's it's not really for writers. It's for readers. So this is a book meant really for writers.
0: The question I ask every guest on this show. Is this, if you could go back and talk to your 16 year old self, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give that girl?
1: Well, I can tell you the advice that my boss gave me when I had a summer job um, actually writing Nikon manuals, even though I'd never taken a photograph, which will let you know why the Nikon, man, why camera manuals are so bad. <laughs> but he said, stop thinking about boys and focus on your work. That would be my advice. Um, I probably lost some time thinking about boys.
0: Well, I'm sure your husband is glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> So how can people connect with you on the web? Where are you active on social media?
1: Um, I have a, a Facebook author page. I have a Twitter account, although all I do is, is rail about politics on there so far. Uh, I do not have 85 million followers. If people want to follow me, I'll follow you back, as they say on Twitter. And my website is lisazeidner.com which is easy to find as long as you know E before I, rather than I before E.
0: Z-E-I-D-N-E-R. Z-E-I-D-N-E-R, right. Very easy to remember. Do you find that talking politics on social media impacts the attitude of some would-be readers?
1: <laughs> I assume people on Parler, I just assume they're not working on novels, but maybe that's not a, not a, a fair assumption.
0: For many people, it feels like a cathartic experience to post those things, even though these days they may be alienating half of their audience in the process.
1: I do worry about the fact that writers, when they have a clever thought, are going to Twitter to voice it rather than writing it in a notebook and thinking about how they can use it in a work of fiction. I mean, it does seem, when we talked earlier about attention span, it does seem like a, a, a reduction and a cons- Description of the literary energy. You know, I think that when you're working on a project, you really want to live in your head and you don't want somebody screaming up to you, did you defrost the chicken? Uh, or did you get an oil change? I mean, you just, you, you want to leave all that stuff behind. And that includes, of course, politics, which has consumed all of us so hugely over the past, uh, period so yeah let's all get off twitter and facebook
0: lisa zeidner has a growing canon of great fiction and her latest non-fiction work is who says sure to become the go-to reference for anyone wanting to learn point of view lisa thanks for being on the program with us today
1: thanks so much it was a pleasure to talk to you
0: authors on the air can be found on facebook twitter instagram and soundcloud we invite you to explore the many other podcasts that focus on the craft aggregated at the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Our theme music was written by Pablo Butorin. I'm Terry Shepard, and I'll see you in the next chapter.